You're listening to TIP. When you have a company that's going up 10, 20, 30 times in value, like Expel did, pretty quickly it can be oversized position. I'm not a believer that you trim because it's it's become a big percentage of your portfolio. You want to constantly make sure that you got that Wayne Gretzky on your in your lineup, right? And if you got him, you put him on the ice as much as you can. You hold him as long as you can. And then when you see he's kind of, you know, he's, he's losing his edge, then maybe you take him off the ice a little bit. In this episode, I chat with Paul Andriola about his discovery investing system for microcap stocks, why focusing on undiscovered business is so powerful, his approach to discovering undervalued stocks, why holding on to your winners is so important, and much, much more. Paul Andriola is a successful investor, board member, and investing speaker. He invests in undiscovered Canadian small cap businesses and shares his ideas with his private community and on Twitter. I found Paul on Twitter and have learned so much from him, from his timeline, from direct messages with him, his website, and previous interviews. He's also helped me learn about a bunch of interesting small caps I've researched. If you're interested in investing in small caps, he's a must follow. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Paul Andriola. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and today we bring Paul Andriola onto the show. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Kyle. Happy to be here. I've been following you pretty closely for over a year now, as you have some ideas that I really resonate with. I've asked you a lot of questions on Twitter, and you've given me some insightful responses in terms of analyzing small cap businesses. Your entire strategy is very unique in that you only target businesses in Canada that are largely undiscovered. Can you go over your investing system in a little more detail for people who maybe aren't familiar with it and tell me why you only stick with Canadian businesses? Well, it, it maybe a little bit of background might help answer that question. So I originally, I started as a carpenter, so physical work that I, I got tired of pretty quickly. But actually, I went into the investment industry, became a broker, and eventually became an investment banker. But really what I learned there is that I learned how the system works. I learned how the investment system works. And once I understood that, I sort of figured out little ways to hack the system, find, you know, unique things that gave me an edge. And what I really came to understand is I had to concentrate on something, get real good at one sector of the market. And the, the sector happened to be microcaps. And then when I sort of, you know, shrunk the universe of microcaps down even more, I thought I had to be an expert in one one side of that microcap market. And being Canadian, I picked the Canadian market. And I think what also helped was the fact that the Canadian market, it's less well known, it's less well understood than the US market. So you were seeing valuations that were significantly different than what you were seeing in, in the US. And because I knew how the system really worked, I tried to find spots where you know, I, I had that extra edge and, and really it was a, a function of studying this one, sort of I call it my sandbox, setting my own sandbox really, really well and knowing where those little nuances were or where the mispricing was, little things like that. So it's really a, a function of, you know, trying to be an expert in one space, trying to get that extra edge against everybody else. And because I knew the Canadian system better than any other, that's where I really uh, focused. 
Yeah. And so with the companies in Canada that you do focus on, you mentioned obviously that you want undiscovered businesses. So a lot of these are pretty, pretty immediate right after their IPOs. How do you kind of look at some of these businesses that maybe aren't even profitable or sometimes don't even necessarily have revenues yet? Okay. So again, understanding how the system works, what will I follow? companies that IPO, I tend not to invest in a lot of new issues. What I noticed over time was that a lot of these IPOs tend to go to the market really early. And again, there, there's a difference between the Canadian sort of capital markets and the U.S. capital markets. In the U.S., the VC market is much more mature than it is in Canada. So you tend to see companies that stay private longer, especially the better ones. They stay private longer. They get funded better. Whereas in Canada, they tend to go public, you know, significantly sooner because they just don't have the same kind of capital access from the venture capital markets and as they do in the US. So you see a lot of these these companies IPO way too early. And, you know, the majority of them actually don't do well. But the ones that that sort of struggle and learn how to learn how to sort of survive on their own without that extra capital that, that you constantly need at an early stage, those are the ones that tend to sort of be outliers. They tend to sort of learn the hard way. They tend to you know, because there's a lack of resources, they're a lot more efficient with their resources, whether it's money, people, even their shares, it's baptism by fire, right? They're actually learning out there. So what we do is we follow these IPOs and we wait until we see an inflection point. Sometimes I'd say 90% of the time there is no inflection point and the company is done and it's kind of having to find some other sort of pivot or something like that. But the odd one that does start to sort of do the right things, but at the same time, it's not getting the attention from the market. Now you're an undiscovered, almost orphan. You're doing all the right things. Knowing the industry like I did, I also know the investment banking side, which drives so much of the microcap space in Canada. The investment banking side, they don't care if you're making money now, right? If you're making money, there's no reason for them to get involved. So here you have this circumstance where companies finally figured out how to turn into a real business. It's starting to make money. Everybody's forgotten about them. And the investment banking community, who usually does the homework of trying to find places to go and, and invest capital, they have no need to care because they can't invest any capital in these companies. So you have this small, small subset of this whole microcap ecosystem that has gone through all that stuff and is grossly mispriced to the market. And that's kind of where we come in. We try to capture that company at that inflection point before anybody else pays attention. Hence, you know, this undiscovered sort of feature that we keep talking about. Gotcha. And I definitely want to get more into that. But first, I just want to get to know a little bit more about your background. So you mentioned you have a background in construction and investment banking. And I've also just from my research saw that you've also worked as a stockbroker and some startups, I believe, as well. So my question is, how have these experiences that from previous jobs that are, you know, obviously some of them are investment related, but how have they helped shaped your investing strategy and philosophy today? Well, a construction helped shape it because I realized how much I hate physical work and how lazy I actually am. I mean, a work ethic, that's part of it, I think, from that type of job. But I really start to understand businesses in the startup phase. I was involved in two companies. I was a founder of two tech startup companies and really learned, again, what the market looks like from the inside of a business rather than from the outside. So I really understood how you know, investment bankers work and how the industry treats companies that are you know, successful, then not successful, you know, need money, don't need money. All those things that uh, allowed me to sort of be behind the curtain and understand what goes on behind these businesses while they're trying to deal with capital markets. So I think 
that was a, a real, you know, good experience for me. I also realized, you know, we, we had a very successful a company that went public and we had one that went, that wasn't able to go public because it couldn't get enough money. So you really start to understand the, the capital requirements and needs and how the industry and, and just the world sort of revolves around you as you're trying to grow this little business. So that, that was real helpful. And then of course I said, you know, once I was in the capital markets, the sort of the knowledge I gained from there was really how all these companies sort of struggle and have to deal from sort of that end of the business. So I come to investing, I think with a lot of, you know, unique experiences that allow me to have different views on these, these businesses that I eventually try to invest in. So on one of your previous interviews, you actually mentioned two books, but one that really stood out to me was What Works on Wall Street. You said that this book had a big impact on you. And I was just wondering what are the primary areas of that book that helped impact you and shape your current investing system? So there's a number of books that really have had an impact. What I like about most of these books are the ones that have given me an impact. There's at least one or two takeaways that I get that sort of have shaped my investing strategy. What works on Wall Street, what it did was basically, I wish it was the first book I read when I got into the industry because it took me, you know, 10 plus years of experience and trial and error and school of hard knocks, whatever you want to call it, to learn what I learned in that book. And it solidified my belief that where I was operating was the place to be. So what works on Wall Street is basically a synopsis of all the data from, I think, over a hundred years of how the stock market works and what works best in there. So whether it's large caps, mid caps, small caps, you know, all those things, growth versus value. And over time, what they found was that basically small, profitable growth companies far out, sort of outpace all the other categories of stocks, right? Now, I learned that by mistake, but trial and error over 10 years, right? Had I known that in the beginning, I would have spent a lot more time focusing on that. So that, that was a big thing. It really gave me the confidence that where I was working was the place to be. And, you know, it really just allowed me to double down on, on stuff that I was experiencing and, and seeing that was working. Yeah, I, I look, I got the book and I really enjoyed a lot of parts for it. I, I obviously, I, I bought it after you suggested it. So I, I already saw that uh, I kind of had that lens of the small cap. So I looked at everything that they mentioned about small cap. And yeah, I mean, like you said, the, the data really does support small cap performance. It has some other really interesting things. Like I know you also mentioned price momentum and buying at 52 week highs and how that can basically help impact the way you invest as well. Yeah. So that I got from a different book called How to Make Money in Stocks. So by William O'Neill. That one I actually read before What Works on Wall Street. And it, it kind of blew me away because I, you know, I'd studied the markets. I'd read all sorts of books in the past. You know, I'd actually gone through my course to become a broker and get licensed. And throughout all these other books, it was basically ingrained in you that the idea is to buy low, sell high, you know, buy when something's low and sell when something's high. And, you know, that's sort of the nature of everybody's thinking when it comes to investing. But this book really changed my line of thinking to say, okay, no, you want to buy high with the idea that you're going to sell a lot higher. And by buying high, what you're finding is companies that are actually already doing things right. You know, if a company is going to go up a hundred times in value, well, it's going to be hitting a 52 week high a lot of times before it gets there. So that was one of the key things I got from that. But then also the criteria that you have to look for that justifies why it should keep going higher and higher. And it's, it's things like rapid growth rate, you know, it's sort of a, a smaller amount of shares outstanding. Yeah, I really start to understand the discovery process because you want to buy before all the institutional investors are buying. 
These are critical pieces. There, there's a number of other things in there, but it really was. I, I like to say it changed my financial future, that book, when I read it, because it really put so many of the, the theories that I had ingrained in me, it sort of threw it upside down and really made me think differently and sort of allowed me to finalize the strategy that, that I have now. It's a big cornerstone of what I do. So I've had the CDAR experience and seeing the website makes me think that I'm logging onto the website with a dial up for the first time. So for those of, of my audience who don't know what CDAR is, it's an acronym for System for Electronic Document Analysis and Retrieval. So for US listeners, you can kind of think of it as a Canadian version of Edgar. So you said that the CDAR process and the fact that it's, you know, ancient looking is part of the advantage of your system because only those who are willing to do the work of going through all the different filings are going to find the best opportunities. Is there any new technology that you've come across that helps you filter through CDAR more quickly or is it still all manual work? And if technology were to come along that would make filtering CDAR easier, do you think your system would still work as well as it does now? So, yeah, I, I think I have a competitive edge because, like you said, the system from the 1980s, which, by the way, they've just changed it over the last couple of weeks. And I didn't think they could make it any worse, but they actually did. So I, I'm happy about that because that's going to block a lot of other people from doing what we do. But, I, you know, I think there's always tools that can make it a little bit easier. And, you know, there's all sorts of software screening systems that are out there. You know, I've, I've got experience that some of these software systems, there's always one or two that fall between the cracks. And the beauty is those are the ones you actually want to find more than any others because, you know, it's, it's significantly less discovered. If everybody's using software to try to screen these, everybody's doing the same thing. There's no real advantage, right? So we do it manually. We physically read filings. We also get a feel for these companies when we do that. So, you know, doing software screening by itself is not going to give you the same feel as reading a, an annual report or reading quarterly reports. So I think we'll always have an advantage in doing that. You get that different feel. You get to understand companies a little bit more. And what we end up doing is we start to, we, so we almost get a feel for a company before it triggers the criteria we look for. So we'll get to know companies a little bit better by doing this manually. And just so you know, like we spend maybe a half an hour to an hour a day, depending on how busy the filings are that day. And we go through them all on a daily basis. And then several times a year, we'll do sort of an A to Z where we go through all the companies again. And it's a big advantage. Like it's a big advantage. We've seen in the past, but one of my biggest wins ever is a company called Expel. Expel for a few different reasons fell between the cracks. It was very undiscovered at the time. I found it using that manual process of going through filings. And um, as long as I've had that in it, as an experience, I'm going to keep doing it. Like you can't, you know, no point in fixing it if it's not broken. So I'll keep doing this. Excellent. So you mentioned in other interviews that you're looking for two consecutive quarters of earnings before a business starts to interest you as part of your discovery process. So how do you view short-term tailwinds as part of your process? Are there specific areas in a business that are displaying some durable competitive advantages that make you confident that earnings are likely to stay positive for the near future? And what might signal you that the earnings boost is only short-term? So, you know, that, that's a great question. It's something that's really been prevalent over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. We've had a lot of businesses that have sort of had paradigm shifts that, you know, are short term in nature. And then others where, you know, there's probably a, a longer term tail to it, but may have been impacted by pandemic. So a lot of work that we do is to really try to determine how and why the trend is in place. So the reason we look for two quarters of 
you know, profitability. That doesn't necessarily mean that's the first time we've seen the company. We may be tracking it for several quarters and now those two quarters have triggered what we're looking for. We want to see a trend, right? One data point or one quarter is not a trend. But if we have several quarters, now we can identify that there's a trend here. And then we want to try to identify why that trend exists. If it's because there's a brand new product, then likely that product is is not just a one-off and it's fleeting. It you know We want to see if that product has longevity and we want to understand a bit of the competitive market. So there's a, there's a number of things we look for. And quite frankly, a number of the other criteria we use sort of increases our odds that we're onto something where that trend has longevity. So it's a bit of a trigger point, but that's likely a trigger point after a number of other trigger points that we've been uh, dealing with. And like I said, in most cases, we've been following the company for several years. And now that's just that point where we're so okay. Now it's time to look at buying it. So moving on to the retail part of uh, investing. So the retail interest in nano caps and micro caps seems to be getting larger and larger with the popularization of websites like yours, the small cap discoveries, micro cap club, Twitter, Substack. There's a wave of new retail investors that are discussing or seemingly discussing less discovered ideas. Are you finding that this wave of new interest is disrupting your strategy in any way? Or is it just kind of validating that an idea that you have is already undiscovered if no one's still talking about it? it. You know, another good question, and I've been doing this so long, I've seen waves of this sort of stuff come and go. Back when I, years ago, when I first joined the Microcap Club, I remember there was a, what seemed like a large group of investors that were interested in microcaps. But what I really learned was we were fanatics. Like we were a smaller group than I thought, but we we're just crazy to want to deal with microcaps. But we tend to see is over time when microcaps are, are really working well, you see a big influx of investors coming down to the microcaps. And when things get bad or slow, they sort of leave, right? And I'm less worried about the retail investor than the institutional investor. What the other thing I recognize is that, again, in my days in the industry, I saw this, the institutional investor tends to go up and down market as well. And that's really where the capital is, right? So when, you know, retail can have a little bit of sort of an influx of capital. But when the institutional guys come, that's when you start to see meaningful moves in these stocks. So I don't, I won't say the retail investor tends to be a lot more emotional. So they, they tend to be very fleeting and they, they don't have that same impact. And what I also find is that if you get really good as a retail investor, you get really good at the micro caps. Sooner or later, you're sort of, you've outgrown the micro caps. So you're constantly, I hate to call them amateurs, but you're, if you stay in the micro cap space, you're constantly sort of competing against amateurs. So I'm not worried about the retail guy. It's the institutional guy that finally wakes up one morning and says, hey, wait a minute, there's just too much value down in the micro cap space. I better get down there. And right now we're not seeing that. We're seeing quite the opposite where institutional guys are going up market because they want liquidity and they want, they want assurance that they can sell something that they need to. But like I said, it comes in waves. I'm not worried about any of the other retail guys right now, other than, I mean, there's a handful of real smart guys that I have to bump my head against uh, all the time, but uh, so far so good. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. 
Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% in APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. Yeah, interesting. With the waves of interest, obviously that happens all over the market, but have you found that there's been waves of interest from institutions specifically into microcaps in the past once you know valuations get more attractive or if you start seeing bubbles in there that just to start attracting more capital? Well, yeah, like two years ago when we had a real, real bull run in the microcaps, that's exactly what happened. You saw institutional investors. Like what I've really noticed in my career is that you tend to see these levels, these, these microcap uh, sort of market cap levels that are almost gates, right? So really almost anything under $50 million market cap in Canada, you see very, very little, if any, institutional interest. Between 50 and 100 million, that's when you start to see some of the smaller groups start to come down market and play in that area. And then over 100 million, that seems to be the real 
the real spot where these institutional guys start to take an interest. So when things get real exciting, you see them start to move those levels down a little bit. So I've seen, you know, in, in the height of the, the bull market for microcaps, I was watching them invest in 10 and $15 million market cap companies, which was, you know, right now, I mean, they wouldn't come close to anything like that. So yeah, they come down and of course, the minute they get spooked, they run away. And hopefully that's when guys like me come in and start to pick up the pieces after they run away with their tail between their legs. So with this discovery process, you've been obviously doing it for a really long time. What are the primary risks that you've observed or maybe you've experienced from using your process that you've created? Okay. So I mentioned liquidity a couple of times. You know, I think that's something your batting average has to be a little bit better than average if you're playing down here. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck with investments that, that they're going to be very hard to sell, even if you wanted to, especially as you, you grow your portfolio in size. If, if it's small amount and it's a little bit easier, but that's one of the issues. So you have to have a high degree of confidence in, in the investment you're making. You have to have that margin of safety, really. So that, that's kind of what I'm looking for is to mitigate some of those. And the way I structure my portfolio actually is how I deal with some of that risk. So I, you know, my initial position, my starter position, anything I really like, it's never too big that if, if something goes wrong and I can't get out, that it's going to have too much of a material impact on my overall portfolio. That being said, even from time to time, I'll grow my, my position because things are going well and then something goes wrong. Well, ideally the stock's gone up enough where even if I'm selling, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. That's kind of what I've seen historically happen. So. You know, I'm, as I'm getting older, maybe it's my just my conservative nature as I get older or just laziness or what I'm saying no more often. And I'm trying to really find those fat pitches or those opportunities where my risk is far outweighed by my upside. And it gives me that that ability to take a chance. And, um, and like I said, part of my sizing is my strategy to mitigate some of that risk as well. You mentioned previously that every six to 12 months that you like to go through all companies in your investable universe, starting with the A's and down to the Z's. You mentioned that this process usually can bring up anywhere between five to 10 names that interest you, but I'm interested in knowing how long this process takes and outside of obviously finding interesting names, what other hidden benefits does this process give you? So it usually takes, I've got a partner that I work with that helps me go through these. So we, we sort of compare notes at some point, but it'll take me a solid week. I basically have to, you know, lock myself in a room and uh, have my wife feed me under the door for about a week as I go through these things. But so yeah, we do it two times a year. We've already got a, a comfort level with these companies because we've seen them already. So it doesn't take us the inordinate amount of time to to review them. But the benefit is that we feel confident that nothing's slipping between our fingers, right? So we're, we're making sure that we've got the whole landscape covered. But the other thing it does, it, it helps us when we find things or we don't find things, it helps us gain confidence in our existing portfolio, right? We want to feel like we have the best uh, stocks that are hitting our criteria out there. And if we review at all times, then we're, we sort of know you know, where, where the good stuff is and, and hopefully it's in our portfolio, right? So it, it gives us that added comfort that, you know, that we own the best of the best in, in the space that we're looking at. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you mentioned that you have a partner. So does having the partner definitely make that process of going through them a lot quicker? Like, are you guys, you know, splitting it up 50-50 or are you literally all just going through it, both of you going through all of them and then just kind of comparing notes between everything that you find? 
Yeah. So we go through all of them and then we compare notes, right? So it's not that it makes it quicker. What it does, if anything, it makes it longer because we are, we'll argue things, right? Which I think is very healthy. And we come at it from different angles too, right? So my partner used to work for the TSX exchange. He was an analyst there. So he has a a slightly different view on things. He's a lot more looking into some of the reasons and some of the filing components of what they've done. Whereas I'm looking at it much more from a fundamental standpoint. And then, I mean, the other big piece we do is we actually look at some of the people and, and you know, because of our context within the industry, we sort of get a, a bit more due diligence on some of the people, not not just in management, but in the microcap space, you have to understand there's a lot of people in the background, right? There's a lot of financing people and and people that are, you know, major shareholders and, you know, things like that that you need to know. So coming at it from two different angles, coming at it from different viewpoints, being able to argue different ideas, I find that very, very helpful. How do you view shares outstanding growth during the discovery process? Since many of the businesses you are looking at are just recently turning profitable, is it safe to assume that many are going to be issuing equity in order to finance their growth? And how do you factor dilution into whether the investment will create value for shareholders as they continue to grow? So, so that is one of our key criteria we look for is the amount of shares outstanding. And we try to determine what the financing risk is, right? What's the risk that they're going to need to finance and dilute some more? So one, one of the nice things is when a company does turn profitable, right? That's sort of the, the gatepost, if you want to call it that, where they're finally in position that they don't need the market to continue to fund them, or at least they're, they're significantly closer to that point. So it's not unusual, though, to see companies at that point still want to get some outside funding because, you know, they may be growing now for a reason that requires them to bring in more money. You know, they've launched a new product. They want to grow faster. Maybe they've seen some acquisition opportunities. But usually when they get to that inflection point, the reason they're looking for cash is to further grow their business, right? Either through an acquisition or product launch, something like that. So it's actually a good reason to raise money, in my opinion. If a company's burning money, if they continue to lose money, we find that is, is not as good a reason to go and raise money. So we, we try to avoid that. But I'd almost say at that point, it's less than 50-50. There's still a lot of companies that will go out and raise money, but the majority won't. And, you know, sometimes we look at the companies that are raising money, sometimes that actually turns out to be an opportunity because these are illiquid companies in a lot of cases, especially if insiders own large positions. Sometimes we'll actually approach those companies and say, look, your balance sheet is still a little offside. You need some money. Why don't we raise the money? Why don't we give you the money? That's how we get our position. You guys get the capital you need. You know, you've got a good sort of capital markets partner and you guys can, you know, accelerate your business. So we don't necessarily view it as negative. We view it as potentially as an opportunity, but it is something we, we want to really understand. And once we're involved, we want to kind of see that there's not a lot of reasons to go and raise more money, unless it's something that's going to really, really change the growth pattern in the business. So I mentioned previously about how you enjoy using kind of momentum and looking at stocks that are trading at those 52 week highs because it is starting to show an inflection point in the business. So with that, obviously stocks trading at 52 week highs can obviously be offering returns that aren't necessarily the best. So how do you interplay looking at stocks at the 52 week highs as well as value and are you finding that in the microcap space that there are sometimes stocks at those 52-week highs that just they're not feasible investments because of the price? The function or understanding what drives a 52-week high is something that sort of has made my strategy what it is. But I don't just buy companies that are hitting 52-week highs. Sometimes I'm the driver or, you know, sort of 
the discovery process, whether it's me or somebody else, that's what starts to drive this sort of move or trend towards 52 guys. So more times than not, because I've got a larger pool of capital than I started with years and years ago, I'm more confident in buying before it's hitting a 52 high if the fundamentals make sense to me. And then what ends up happening, because some of these companies are relatively liquid, I'm the driver of that 52 week high, or somebody like me is the driver. But now because I understand what's driving it, you know, the, the company's been discovered. The company is now being noticed. And if I have a position and I'm starting to see that happen, then I understand where it is in that discovery process, right? So it's not make or break anymore. I don't need to see a 52 week high, but I love to see it once I feel the discoveries process has started. And then I can fine tune how I sort of act based on that 52 week high, right? So I, I'm not afraid to add to my position because it's hitting a 52 week high. That's actually encouraging me to add to my position. So it's things like that, having understood what it all means, the background fundamentals that drive it, the background discovery process that find that's driving it. And then ultimately, it helps in determining how I go about selling position if necessary. So you've said in previous uh, interviews that after buying a stock, you are often trying to find reasons that you would not want to add to the position. So obviously it's going to be company dependent, but what are some of those types of fundamentals of specific businesses you're following that help you determine when a business is indeed improving and maybe you should be putting more of your money into? So really you establish a thesis as to why you want to own at the beginning. So, you know, a company, let's say a company's growing at 30% a year, it's trading at single digit price earnings ratios, you know, its earnings are growing nicely, there's leverage in the business. These are some of the fundamental reasons why we actually want to own that stock. So provided those things continue to happen, sometimes we see an acceleration of growth. We see acceleration of that sort of stock. We're going to continue to own that stock. We're going to continue to want to own more of it if it keeps sort of giving us a margin of safety to what we think the real value is. So those are the drivers that we're going to constantly look for. Now, if something breaks down and all of a sudden, you know, the company's not growing anymore, well, that starts to give us a reason to look at selling, right? That, that's one of many different reasons, but that's one that we're going to look at. And then remember, we're not just looking at our portfolio. We're measuring our portfolio against everything else that we have an opportunity to invest in. So. If we see a company that's growing at 30% a year and it's trading at 15 times earnings, but we just found another one that's growing at 100% a year and trading at you know 10 times earnings, well, we've got to offset that decision and maybe that's a reason we're selling even though this other one is doing okay. What are some red flags that have been thrown up in an investment that you've already purchased that have prevented you from adding to a position or maybe trigger you to exit earlier than expected? So you mentioned a little bit just previously, but how are you looking at, say, returns on capital, margins, KPIs? Are all those types of things also going to be helping guide your decision making if you need to get out or add or just maintain a position? Yeah, so exactly. That's exactly what we're looking for is some deterioration in the underlying business, whether it's you know something that's, again, like I said, the growth has changed or maybe the profitability has changed. We want to understand why these things are happening. Sometimes you'll see them because they're going to, you know, they're investing in future growth. Their, you know, their R&D spend is going up because they've got some new products they want to launch. Maybe they're selling, you know, spending more on marketing because they want to get more aggressive in growing the business. These are all things that you have to sort of understand to determine what the future outlook looks like and, and, you know, what the risk profile of whether it's changed or not. 
So those are things we look for. But more significantly, the fundamentals can be relatively easy to understand, see if there's deterioration there. But there's a lot of capital markets things that microcaps do that I think are red flags, right? When you see them start to issue a lot of shares, when they're looking at financing for reasons that don't make a lot of sense, or they're spending egregious amounts of money on investor relations or something that doesn't make a lot of sense, you have to question their capital markets sort of savvy. And I've seen a lot of companies sort of fall apart when they don't understand that part, right? The, the, maybe the insiders don't own enough stock, so they're trying to, you know, they, they don't have the same vested interests as, as shareholders do. You've got to watch the capital market steps that they make very carefully. And, you know, I, I learned years and years ago that, and it's part of our due diligence, is you want to really understand the makeup of the board and to see if there's someone in there that can help guide the CEO in making sure he doesn't make sort of standard capital markets mistakes. And there's lots of them. We see a lot of that that goes on. And sometimes it's not the fault of the CEO. They just don't know better and they're getting some poor advice. So looking at that board member that you just discussed who could maybe help guide, how do you know what person to look for in the board? Is this just part of your due diligence process when you're looking at a specific business? Or is this kind of just kind of insider knowledge that you know from having worked in the industry for so long? So it's a little bit of both. A lot of times when we do look at a company and sometimes, you know, through an interview with management, we try to determine who on the board has a vested interest, meaning they, they own a significant amount of shares and have capital markets knowledge, right? So somebody, you know, usually you see a board that has certain different industry expertise and sometimes it's all based on the industry that they're in. And that, that's fine. But when you get a legal question, when you get an accounting question, when you get a capital markets question, who are their advisors, right? And if their advisor is an investment banker, then, you know, we get nervous because there's two different sort of perspectives or, you know, incentives there. So we want to know that somebody that that's sort of been in the capital markets, ideally, is sitting on the board and can sit there and say to the CEO, no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that kind of financing. You don't want to spend that kind of money on IR. You don't want to do those things, right? They're doing it because they've got a vested interest in making sure the company's fine. So we constantly ask, and try to determine who on that board has, you know, a meaningful stake in the business and has that experience to be able to tell that CEO, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, it goes for everything else on the board, right? You want to find a board that has good rounded expertise that the CEO is going to draw mentorship from or advice from. And without that, you question what that board is really doing. So I know that you've been a pretty concentrated investor in the past. You discussed that you've had one stock make up to something like 60 to 70% of your portfolio at one time. May I ask what that name was and what are normal levels of concentration for you like today? I had a number of them, so it's not just one, but Expel was an example. Now, part of the problem is, and you sort of wish this because it, w it didn't start off as a 60, 70% piece of my portfolio, right? It grew into that. And when you have a company that's going up 10, 20, 30 times in value, like Expel did, pretty quickly, it can be oversized position. I'm not a believer that you trim because it's it's become a big percentage of your portfolio. You want to constantly make sure that you got that Wien Gretzky on your in your lineup, right? And if you got him, you put him on the ice as much as you can, you hold him as long as you can. And then when you see he's kind of, you know, he's, he's losing his edge, then maybe you take him off the ice a little bit. So that's my approach. It's always been my approach. I never, ever, you know, a starting position is never going to be an outsized position. It's going to be a couple percentage points and they have to earn their way in. Right. So I could grow a position of maybe 10, 15 percent. But at that point, if it's going to get any bigger, it's going to get bigger because it's it's just moved in size. 
right? So that's sort of the makeup of my portfolio. I'm not afraid to concentrate. I tend to know these businesses better than almost anybody else at part of what we do. And like I said, that confidence also comes from the fact that we're constantly looking at everything else that's available and we're comparing it to everything else. So if it's gotten that size, it's usually because it's just better than everything else we've, we see that's available and we're just not going to sell. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. 
What are normal holding periods like for your stocks? Do you average up when the opportunity set looks like it will be longer than when you first imagined? So for instance, let's say you put in a full position by cost basis of, like you said, maybe 10 to 15%. If the business is just continuing, like maybe you, you observe that it has five more years of growth that you didn't account for before, will you continue averaging up or do you kind of set hard limits on, on that end of the uh, portfolio management spectrum? I love averaging up. I love it. I love it. I love it. I've learned the hard way to love it. It So much of this is all through experience and what I've dealt with. So my biggest mistakes in the market have not been, hey, I bought the stock and it went down. That's normal. It happens to everybody. And my biggest mistakes have always been, hey, I've got this one stock and it's going up. And why don't I start selling it? Because it's going higher and I'm making money. But you know, where I really learned this the hard way is I had a company years and years ago called Bowflex. And Bowflex, if you're old enough, you remember those exercise machines and you name it on, on TV. But it was a company that was growing very rapidly. It was an undiscovered company. I'd bought it at around a dollar a share. And within about a year and a half, it was it had already 10x. It was like $11, $12. And here I am thinking, I'm a genius. I'm selling this because I'm up. Even though the company was still putting out the numbers, it was still very cheap based on its growth profile. And I'm selling it, right? And this thing eventually, I think after splits and everything, it, it went about to $250, $300. I mean, it's still around. It's called Nautilus on the New York Stock Exchange. It was just a monster. So my mistake wasn't sitting there and owning the stock. My mistake is actually how I held it and how I sold it, right? I should have been averaging up all the way. Instead of selling it all the way up, I should have been averaging up. So, you know, having learned that from so many uh, situations, if you find a company that, that is fundamentally still proving out your thesis, that you can argue is still undiscovered and giving you a margin of safety to what you think the valuation is, it's telling you you should keep buying it, right? Keep buying it until your thesis breaks or until you have something else that's just egregiously more obvious than this one. So for me, I love averaging out because it's a sign that business is doing the right thing. It's a sign that the discovery process has at least started and I'm comfortable owning these things for, for a very long period of time if they continue to perform. What are your normal holding periods like for your stocks? Do you, I mean, obviously you'll, it kind of depends, I guess, right? There's certain businesses where, you know, maybe you're only looking for a two to three year opportunity or maybe even shorter, but on average, how long would you say you like to both look for holding a stock and how long do you actually end up holding stocks for? Well, first off, I'll say my losers, I hold too long and my winners, I hold too short. If, no matter what, even if I hold the loser for a day, it's too long. What I find is, look, I've got some stocks that I've held for five or six years and I'm, I'm comfortable. I don't set any kind of timeline target. It's strictly a valuation target. And if anything, the most or the reason I sell more times than anything else is because I found something that's just a better opportunity, right? So that's usually the driver of something. So I've got no problem holding stocks for five to 10 years, provided that I don't find something that's a better opportunity. So it's rare that, you know, after five or six years, I can't find something that's a better opportunity because if, if things are working, then that whole discovery process, which, you know, we haven't talked too much about, but you'll understand what drives it. And our belief is that once a company's fully discovered, you're only going to get the performance of the business rather than that discovery arbitrage that you can get. So why don't we dive into that discovery process in a little more detail? What specifically are you looking for in the discovery process that has helping you get these outsized returns in stocks that are trading not only at very low evaluations, but are also growing very, very fast? So our belief, and I think it's played out by you know a lot of the books we've read and uh, even the experience that we've had, but stocks change in value 
based on how many people really come to understand that business. So, you know, some companies will will toil in obscurity because there's nothing that's going to trigger that discovery. They're either not making enough money or they're not exciting enough to get somebody interested in the stock. But from time to time, companies that are going to do very well, something will trigger a sort of initial level of discovery. So it could be a, an earning statement. It could be a newsletter writer. It could be somebody, you know, a, a company jumps on a podcast like yours and has a bigger audience. All of a sudden, more people find out about the business. And hence, that larger audience is able to drive that share price, right? When you understand that, you're understanding what really is the process that drives margin expansion or price earnings expansion or whatever valuation expansion you want to talk about. Why does a company like Expel, like when I found Expel, it was trading about eight times earnings and it was growing over 100% a year. And yet now it's at $80 plus, And I think it trades around 40 times earnings and it's growing actually slower. So what drove that? Well, everybody knows Expel now, whereas back when I looked at it, nobody really knew it. So understanding that process, I think gives you a massive edge and gives you that opportunity for that outsized gain. You got to know what triggers these things. You got to know how to determine if it's triggered yet or not. If everybody's talking about a stock, you know, it's discovered and more times than not, and you've seen it, right? And more times than not, the stock's probably overpriced. But if nobody's ever heard, if you go to 20 of your investing friends and say, hey, have you ever heard of ABC? And none of them say yes. That's kind of what gets me excited. One of the things we do is like when we actually finally decide to talk to management, we, we usually do you know a lot of work before we even talk to management. But if I phone a small microcap and I ask for you know, it's happened before. I'll, I'll phone the receptionist and say, I need to speak to whoever handles your investor relations. And if she has no idea what I just asked her, if she's confused and doesn't know who I'm supposed to talk to, I get excited because that means there's not a lot of people that have phoned that company. It's things like that that drive our excitement. If all of a sudden she immediately hands me off to an investor relations expert or some outside party or something like that, then I know that you know, they tried to get people to hear about it or they tried to get discovery and exposure and I'm less interested in, I want to find a company that's not discovered. I want to understand that. And quite frankly, if necessary, I'm going to help that discovery process. I'm going to phone institutional investors. I'm going to phone other investors and say, hey, you got to look at this company. And that's how it starts. So you mentioned earlier in this interview that with the fact that a lot of the stocks you invest in are illiquid, you have to be right a little bit more often than maybe, say, investing in larger companies that are more liquid. What would you say your hit rate is like with your strategy? Do you find that your winners are kind of following a power law and then, you know, you can find something like Expel that carries the entire portfolio while you have maybe a few other stocks that aren't necessarily losers, but maybe some that just aren't budging. Maybe the discovery process just is taking a little bit longer than you thought, or maybe some of them, maybe you just make a mistake on and lose some money on. Yeah. So I don't say the style or the strategy we use is very conservative inside the microcap space. There's thousands and thousands of microcaps. I think we did a, a check and only about 5% are actually profitable. So immediately we, we sort of X out that 95%. So we actually think because we're doing that, our odds of success are significantly higher. And then because we're looking for that undiscovered component as well, we think that we shrunk that pool of viable businesses even better. And quite frankly, our, our hit rate is actually quite high. I'd argue it's probably in the 60, 70% range, which is, you know, I think if you're hitting 50% in this business, you're actually doing quite well, but we've hit higher, but that power law that you talk about still has that impact, right? So our losers, 
might be up 10 or 20%, but we're not in the business to try to get 10 or 20% wins on these stocks. We're looking for that outsized gain. So our hope is within the pool of companies that we have that 5X or 20X that we might see in three or four years. And we get those. And the thing is, though, as we see those really start to take off, we want to get have less of those 10 and 20% gainers and try to focus more on those, those Wayne Gretzky's again, like I said. So you do get that. You get an opportunity to see the big winners early. You get an opportunity to double down on them sooner than others. And that's really where you gain. You're going to get it because you're going to manage that winner properly, as opposed to a, a diversified portfolio and hope and pray that, you know, two are going to be big wins. You want to really double down on the ones that you're seeing have that escape velocity. So looking at the other side of the discovery process is obviously the exit strategy that you have. So you've discussed quite a, a few little things that you look for when exiting, but what other things other than say things like what once they get more discovered? So are you looking for things like added institutional ownership, increased analyst coverage? What exactly are you looking for that's going to trigger you to exit an investment? Yeah, selling is, is the hardest thing to do in this business, right? It's easy to sort of pick and choose a few stocks and hope go up. But when it comes time to selling, especially like it, it's selling a loser is pretty quick for us, right? Once a thesis breaks down, it has nothing to do with discovery or not. If the thesis breaks down, you know, it's time to head for the exit door. But the things that we look for that start to tell us when a company's fully discovered is like you mentioned, if an analyst starts to cover a company, it goes into a different level of discovery, right? There's what we call retail discovery and then what we call institutional discovery. So when we start to see a number of analysts covering a stock, that doesn't mean we run for the hills, but it means we're now into that secondary level of discovery. When institutional investors start to participate, that's another level of discovery. When you get that $100 million market cap and you're getting those two things, the analysts and the institutions starting to trigger, that's another level of discovery. But then the other one that I've almost joked about is like when, when you start to see analysts on TV talking about this company, when you start to see institutional investors talking about this company on TV, that discovery process is only completely run. Now, we've got a different dynamic in Canada because right now we're just talking about the Canadian sort of market. But sometimes these companies continue to grow and they go into the U.S. and then you got that whole different level of almost international discovery because now you started all over again. You've got a bigger pool of, of retail investors. You've got a bigger institutional pool that might start to look at a company. So again, like Expel, you know, Expel graduated from a Canadian listing to eventually a NASDAQ listing. And all that time that, you know, while it was a Canadian listed company, it never had any analyst coverage. So, you know, from like, pennies to $8 roughly when it went to NASDAQ, there was no analyst coverage. There was barely any institutional ownership, right? It was bizarre. The minute it got to the US, it just started to get discovered there. And of course, it went 10x from that point there. So you have to understand the different phases. You have to understand where it could get caught up and say, okay, that's about, you know, it's never going to go to NASDAQ. It's never going to get that US audience. So this is kind of as good as it gets. But I got to be clear that if what you've done is once that discovery process has run its course, now you're just left with the performance of the business. And while the performance of the business could be enough to still want you to hold the stock, you want both engines driving your returns. You want that discovery process and the fundamentals working because that's when you're getting, you get your maximum output in that share price. So we're looking for all those things, but one by itself doesn't necessarily tell us, okay, it's time to sell. You know, if the company's still growing very rapidly, if it still looks like it's got good runway and there's nothing else that's better, then we're going to still hold that stock. After investing in multi-baggers that you look for for so long, one of the biggest mistakes that Buffett 
always talks about is mistakes of omission. So this is, you know, things like selling stocks that maybe are still early on in their growth trajectory or just you know, missing something, letting, letting something fall through the cracks. So it sounds like your system is designed very specifically to not allow that to happen. But can you discuss if that has happened or if there's, you know, something that was just looking back seems so obvious, it just smacks you upside the head and you're just like, oh my God, what, how did I miss this? Yeah. So we, we don't have enough time to cover all the mistakes I've made of omission. That's, uh, I mean, I think if you're going to do what we do, if you're going to be in the microcap space, you better get used to the fact that you're going to miss a whole bunch of them, right? And I remember I had an old mentor that told me one time, it's like fishing, right? At the end of the day, you're trying to catch one big fish and be happy about it. You're not sitting there in a river or a lake trying to catch all the fish. You should be happy when you've got one big winner and that's it. You're going to miss so many. Goodness, I've missed so many. I've sold too many big winners early. You just got to get used to that. And if you're, if you're fishing in the right spot, you're going to want to hope to have said, okay, I saw that, but I missed it rather than I never saw it. I've had in my hands, like, you know, almost crying about this, but in my hands, I've had probably half a dozen hundred bangers. Like I've owned these things and sold far too early. That's just the nature of how we sort of the criteria we have will identify them or identify most of them, but it's just impossible to own them all. And it's impossible to time it right. And it's impossible to hold them to the maximum ownership, right? These are just, you just got to get used to the fact that's going to happen. Like you're not going to Again, I'll use a hockey analogy. You're not going to hit every shot and score every shot. You just got to keep taking shots and hope that the odd one gets in. Yeah. It seems like, you know, making those mistakes of omission is part of the investing process. And you basically just have to accept that it's a price that you pay for success. Absolutely. Because we know every stock in Canada, right? We've looked at every stock. We have to know that we're going to miss something. That's just, that's what's going to happen. So other than... Then Expel, what are some of the biggest winners in terms of returns that you've ever invested in? Obviously, aside from these half dozen hundred beggars that you let go early, although maybe some of those probably were ones that, that were big winners for you. Well, okay. So Bowflex was a big win. I mean, I can't say no to 10, 12 X return. That was a good size win and it was early. So that, that was really helpful. But there, there's a lot of micro caps that people have probably never heard of that are like, they were 10 Xers for me and I was able to compound a lot of these things. So, you know, a company called Sanko Tech was a 10 X. Nobody's ever heard of that still. Hamilton Thorne, which is now quite institutionally owned and is a great example of discovery process. That was a 15 X for us. So that was a sizable one. So Bowflex, Metafast was a US listed company. That's one of those hundred baggers that slipped through my fingers. We were buying it in the 20 cent level. I think after splits, that's become a hundred dollar plus stock. Oh my gosh, there's so many of these 10, 20 baggers that, that we have that are still kind of unknown. We recently had one called Inventronics that's turned into a 10 bagger for us. I can give you a massive list. There, there's a lot of these things, but they're still relatively unknown. These microcaps that turn into slightly bigger microcaps, but are 10, 20 times our original money. So you mentioned in another interview about Expel being an American company that listed in Canada because it wanted to take advantage of going public over raising capital from venture capital. How do you see the VC market shaping in the last few years in relation to smaller businesses looking to raise capital both in the US and in Canada? Like, Are there, are there still businesses like Expel that are US-based listing in Canada or has that kind of ship sailed? 
So I actually have done work with the TSX Venture Exchange and, and have gone to the U.S. and presented on behalf of the exchange to try to encourage more and more companies to do this. Uh, yes, there's more and more companies that are looking at Canada and the Canadian exchanges for their capital requirements. You know, the, the venture capital market in the U.S. And, and even in Canada, they're really trying to find that one outlier, that unicorn, you know, that company that is going to be that power driver of their portfolio, you know, the next Uber and LinkedIn and, and whatnot. And so if a company looks like they're just going to be an average business, they don't have the same access to capital that a company would if they if they took that average business and tried to list up in Canada. So I think more and more people are starting to understand that we're starting to see more U.S. companies that come and list up here. Like I mentioned, another, you know, another big winner for us was Hamilton Thorne. Well, Hamilton Thorne is a Boston-based business that listed up here in Canada. We're seeing a number of others like that that are seeing the opportunity to access capital up here at an earlier stage in some cases. And our, you know, it, the venture capital market or the microcap market in Canada is a viable opportunity for some of these businesses to get capital that they need to grow. And it's structured so that they can sort of do it in a more cost effective way than a lot of other opportunities. So, yeah, I think we're going to we're seeing it and I think we'll continue to see not just U.S. listed companies, but international companies that are coming up here and listing and, and you know, going through all the trials and tribulations that, you know, Canadian companies do when they're startups and, and at this stage uh, as a public company. Can you name any interesting companies that you've recently invested in or that are maybe on the CDAR that are starting to interest you? Anything new? Yeah, I mean, there's always something. We're not fad chasers, right? So we miss a lot of the big bubbles and stuff like that. But surprisingly, like cannabis is a great example right now. We completely miss the cannabis craze because we're all we're driven by fundamentals right and there was no fundamentals to to get us excited but now it's come full circle and surprisingly we're starting to see some cannabis names that are starting to turn profitable and are kind of we think significantly mispriced misunderstood and almost hated because they're in that industry so there's a company called cannabis capital i mean they've got some of the strangest names of that industry but cannabis capital is one we really like there's one called grown row that's actually a U.S. listed or U.S. based company that's come up here in Canada and like like we just talked about listed up here. These are two companies we're looking at right now because they fill our sort of fundamental criteria. They've got that inflection point. But here's the thing. Nobody knows these guys. I actually had lunch with a cannabis analyst two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and he'd never heard of these two companies. Right. So. The, the discovery process kind of really kicked in when I heard that, right? So you've got these two companies that are profitable and growing nicely, very unloved the sector that they're in and very unknown. So kind of hit a, a lot of the things we're looking for. So there's that. There's a company that I recently joined the board of that sort of fit all the criteria. I won't mention the name as there's a bit of a conflict there, but there's a number of different companies that we're finding, gosh, Hammond Power or Hammond manufacturing. These are two names that have done exceedingly well. Those are companies that we've been following now for a while. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like you ask me next week, I'll have a, a few more names. <laughs> there's there's always something that, that gets us interested enough to start looking. We do have a new name that we're looking at right now. Again, they meet the criteria we look for. They start to trigger that. Or if we see that inflection point, we get excited about and off we go. There's lots out there. There's lots out there. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about you? Well, thank you, Kyle. First off, I want to really appreciate the time that you've given me. If anybody's interested in talking to me, they can find me on Twitter at Paul Andreola. They can check out our website at smallcapdiscoveries.com. 
And yeah, I mean, it's easy. Track me down. You Google search me. You'll find all sorts of different ways uh, to connect with me. But uh, our website, or even if you want to reach out to me via email, it's at paul at brizio.com. So hopefully that gives everybody enough opportunity to track me down. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.